I didn't realize how popular the children's sermon was. I think I need to, even with communion, I think we just need to do it. So our reading, just routine. Yeah, we're creatures of habit. We're creatures of memory. Our reading today is Luke 24, 13 through 35. It's a famous, memorable passage about the two disciples on their walk to the city of Emmaus. Just a few words of introduction about this passage before I begin. We don't know who these two are. Actually, we know who one of them is. Their name is Cleopas. But their companion, we don't know the name. It's one of those nameless peoples in the Bible. Very interesting. Sometimes it's conjectured that the other person is Cleopas's wife. We just don't know. These two are leaving Jerusalem on Easter Sunday at, in the evening time, just before it's getting dark. And they're leaving, and they're going about seven miles away, which is a pretty long walk, about two hours at that time. Um, this is a story about memory, but it's also a story about perception. In this story, we find that, th- that Jesus returns, but he's a little different than the Jesus that we knew before. When he starts walking alongside them, they're unable to tell who he is. And in the text, you can't tell what it is that keeps them from recognizing Jesus. It could be that it's God that keeps them from recognizing Jesus. Their, their vision is, or their perception is somehow obstructed, and they can't figure out who they're walking next to, uh, even though it's Jesus. You'd think they would remember Jesus. You'd think they'd recognize Jesus. I mean, that face you would remember, but they don't. For two hours, walking along, they don't figure out who it is. It's also possible, though, that there's something within their own set of expectations and perceptions that prevents them from truly recognizing who Jesus is until Jesus himself reveals something to them through memory. Jesus does something particularly memorable in their sight, and it triggers in them a memory, and it enables them to suddenly figure out who he is. Now, The downside of that is then Jesus instantly disappears from their sight too. The the resurrected Jesus is a little different from the pre-resurrection Jesus. The resurrected Jesus has these open wounds that don't bleed out and he doesn't die again. The resurrected Jesus seems to be able to appear behind locked doors and then disappear again. How do we explain this? Well, it's miraculous. It's Jesus. It's the resurrected Jesus In his resurrection body, he can do things that his pre-resurrection body doesn't do, including having having this intensely interesting encounter with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Let's read Luke 24, 13 through 35. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? Maybe a wry smile behind that question. They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. 
The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. Jesus said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the, 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 then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. There are certain things that trigger memories. Your sense of smell can trigger memories. In fact, I'm going to ask you to go back in time and think about what you smelled at the last Thanksgiving dinner you were at. Maybe you smelled a roast. Maybe you smelled a turkey. Maybe you smelled a pumpkin pie coming out of the oven. And not only the memory comes with that smell, but all the feelings that you had. And I'm hoping, I don't know how it is in your family, but I'm hoping your last Thanksgiving was a happy one with your family and you were all together. Those memories can be bad, though, too. Smells and sights and sounds can bring back bad memories, too. Memory is a strong thing with us, and it's triggered by certain actions. I can think of putting a stamp on an envelope putting a letter inside and sealing the envelope and taking it to the mailbox. Just that repetitive action brings back to me all sorts of memories. Memories of when I applied to college when I was a teenager. I remember sticking it in the mailbox and waiting and waiting and waiting. Even sort of repetitive tasks can bring back memories for us. Something like that is happening in this text here today. We'll get to it later. But this is a passage about memory and it's about, it's about perception. We have these two disciples, and this is right after last week's lesson from Luke chapter 24. The women had come back to the disciples. They weren't believed. Peter and John went to the tomb, found that it was empty, but didn't really know what to think of it. Later that day, these two disciples, and they're not of the 11. These are sort of minor disciples. They're 
from the larger group of people who were following Jesus around. These two are, in a way, lesser disciples in two ways. One is that they're not part of the 11. The other is that, is that they were leaving town, basically. They left. Uh, the, the other 11 were hiding for fear of the Jews and anyone else who was going to come after them because they thought Jesus had been completely defeated. These two were not just hiding, but hiding out of town. They were leaving town. It doesn't say why they left town, but there's a good, there's a good bet that they were just trying to get out of Dodge because it wasn't safe there. And so, and the other thing is, they had heard, by their own words, they had heard that the tomb was empty. But there's no evidence here that that triggered enough doubt in them to go and look for it themselves. They, they, they tr- did not trust that account at all. Instead, they just got up and left town, went to this little town called Emmaus, about seven miles away. And what happens next is, is one of those beautiful sort of mistaken identity things that you'll see in movies. They're walking along, and this third person starts walking alongside them. It's Jesus, but they have no idea. They have their, and, and whether it's God preventing them from perceiving that it's him or their own disappointment that they share later that prevents them from seeing who it really is, they can't tell that it's him. What gets even funnier then is Jesus asks them, what are you talking about? Well, we're talking about, you must not, have been, you must not be from around here. Otherwise, you would know everything the town's been upside down lately. They killed Jesus. We had a lot of expectations and hopes for him. We hoped that he would be the one who would redeem Israel. But that didn't happen. We thought something great was going to happen. And Jesus, you know, in, in, to their face almost, you know, says, who, who are you talking about? Well, Jesus, you know, and, and Jesus is kind of, I can just imagine Jesus is kind of behind his own face going, it's me, hello, you're talking. Okay, I, well, I guess we're just going to have to keep talking and walking for a while. And so for two more hours, he walks and he talks with these two and they're oblivious that it's him. It's kind of a funny, there's a little bit of comedy in the scripture from time to time. Um, if you read the story about Elijah and the prophets of Baal, there's some comedy in there. It's really great. Anyway, uh, so Jesus walks along with them, and after hearing how disappointed they are that he had been crucified, and disappointed because their expectations in him had not been met, their expectation was this. We had hoped, all past tense, no longer do they hope this, we had hoped that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped that he was going to be the one who was going to raise an army and equip it with flaming swords and call up a host of angels behind him and rid our country of its occupiers and restore the kingdom to Israel and the streets were going to be safe and our kids were going to play around and it was going to be great. We thought the whole world was going to change with Jesus, but instead we saw him get crucified and we're totally dejected, totally hopeless, totally doubting, and we're leaving town. We're getting out of Dodge. We're done. We've, we've given up on this. It didn't look like they expected. They did not expect the Messiah to suffer. They only thought the Messiah would show up and bring glory with him. And Jesus then rebukes them in a mild way. But he says, how foolish you are. 
Did you not know that the Messiah must first suffer? The Messiah must first suffer. And only after he suffer, then can he enter into his glory. And because he suffers first, the glory that he enters into looks very different than the glory that you're thinking about. You're thinking about a glory that's political, that's military, that's in the here and now, that's physical, that's flesh and blood. The Messiah suffered in flesh and blood, but his glory that he enters into is a spiritual new kingdom that, that can totally outlast the kingdom that you're living in now. It's a whole new way of doing things, a whole new relationship between God and his, his people, a whole new kingdom with a whole new king. It's completely different. The, the Messiah had to suffer first, and that glory that he then enters into makes sense because he suffered and bled and died for people because that new glory he enters into is one where he has died as a servant for the people that he came to save. It looks completely different. And then he, took, he takes a teaching opportunity. In a way, it's, it maybe was good that they didn't recognize Jesus right away because their minds were then still open enough to hear what he was about to say next. And what he did next was he took an opportunity to teach them something. It was a teachable moment. And he began with, uh, just imagine if they had said, oh, it's Jesus, they wouldn't have been listening to anything else he had said. They would have just been so happy and, you know. But he starts with what the scriptures say is Moses and the prophets, and he begins to explain to them on this two-hour walk, everywhere in the Old Testament where it talks about him, where it talks about him specifically, probably, that he must suffer before he enters into his glory and how their expectations of the Messiah were wrong. And there's no doubt that some of the prophets that he talked to with them were like Isaiah and the suffering servant and Jeremiah and many of the other prophets and even some of the Psalms, probably, that talk about the Messiah having to suffer. So you can imagine a two-hour lecture, a two-hour walking lecture, standing next to the master, still not being aware of who he is, how enriched these two disciples were by it. And by the time they got to where they were going and it was almost dark, and usually you get off the road when it's dark. You don't walk around in the dark back then. They said, well, we're, we're at our destination. We're going to go inside. It's, we're going to go into this inn or this house. We're going to have a meal. Why don't you join us? Because he was acting as if he was going to keep going. It was almost a test for them to see how much they had grasped. And so they invite him in as a guest to their house or their inn. But very quickly, the roles begin to reverse, even in that setting. And, and the Bible leaves out a little bit of the detail here, but he's the one that then starts serving them food. That's the traditional role of the host. He sits down at the table with them, and he takes bread, and this is the memory piece. He takes the bread, and he he says this prayer over it that they would have heard a hundred times. And you maybe have heard it too if you've listened in at uh, a, um, a synagogue or something. He probably said something like this, Baruch Adonai Eloheinu. Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe. Ha'olam min 
Lechem Haaretz, who causes earth, bread to come forth from the earth. Can you imagine in that moment Jesus saying that prayer, taking the bread, blessing it that way, breaking it, and handing it to his disciples? Take, bless, break, give. Those four verbs are the exact same verbs that described what Jesus did when he fed 5,000 people. He took that bread and he broke it and he blessed it and he gave it to 5,000 people. And the disciples would have seen that and said, I've seen this before. I've heard this before. I've smelled this before. And instantly, their problem of perception was lifted. They were able to finally figure out who they were talking to all that way. I mean, I wonder if they thought Jesus was kind of tricking them or why didn't you tell us it was you? But they didn't even get a chance to ask that question because this post-resurrection Jesus sort of vanishes from their presence. And, and um, I love the Bible. I'm, I'm, fascinated by the parts that seem to be missing from the Bible. And I know they're missing for a reason, and that's so that I don't get too hung up on them or I won't spend too much time thinking about them. But I would really like to know how Jesus vanished. Did he just shimmer away and there was nothing? Or did he go blip and he was gone? Or did they look that way? Maybe they heard something over there. Oh, and, and then he's gone. I mean, how did he do it? It doesn't say. It's, it's mysterious. And, and you know, it's probably supposed to be a mysterious. It, it, the important part isn't how did he disappear. The important part is he now left them with the mission. They got up at once, instantly. The, the text says that they instantly got up from where they did. You don't travel at night, but they broke their own rule. They got up instantly and made the trek back. And maybe if they, if they sort of jogged in a, in a Middle Eastern kind of jogging, they still would have taken an, more than an hour to get back to Jerusalem back to Jerusalem at night to find the 11 and say, we saw the Lord. He walked with us. And, and of course, then they got the news. Well, he's already appeared to Peter. It must be true. And then if you read a little further on in Luke, suddenly Jesus appears again in their midst. It's a great story. He's left them with the mission. But then it says this. They're talking to each other and they said, you know, I, I remember even something about an hour ago. Weren't our hearts on fire? Weren't they strangely warmed when Jesus, when he was on the road with us and he was explaining to us how the scriptures pointed to him? I had a really great internship supervisor. His name is Richard Solberg. I actually called him about a week ago. Had a great conversation, about an hour. Kind of caught up on all sorts of things. He was my supervisor about 18 years ago when I was still in seminary. And we'd have these great conversations about what it meant to be a pastor and what, what you know, theology and the Bible and all sorts of things. And once I said, I said, what do you do as a pastor? Or just as a believer? What do you do when your doubts are so strong? What do you do when you can't see what you used to see? What do you do? Because I really wanted to know at that moment. I, I had gone through doubt. I was experiencing doubt at the moment. I knew doubt would come back. I don't think doubt is the opposite of faith. I think it's probably part of faith, right? 
And Richard said, remember a time in your life when you knew it was true. Remember a time, and you weren't crazy, you weren't deluded, but it made sense. Remember a time in your life when you knew God was real. Remember that time and hold on to that. And eventually you'll get through this season of doubt and you'll get to a new place where God is real and God is speaking to you. That was always such good advice to me and I, I still remember it. I still hold on to that one as I go through doubt, waves of doubt and faith and, and back and forth. Memory is so powerful. You know, I think we often have this conception of God that God wants to be the Lord of the present in our life and he definitely wants to be the Lord of our future. But Jesus told the church in the book of Revelation that I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. There's this sense that God also wants to be the Lord of our past as well. There are these sacred moments in our life up to now where God has truly broken through to us and they remind us of how real God is. They are these markers on the road where we go, in that moment I truly saw Jesus face to face. And I can remember some. I I think you can too. I, I imagine most of you can. I can remember, and it often happens this way, at Bible camp. I can remember the smell of the pine trees. I can remember the words of the preacher. I can remember the cool air outside blowing on me in the mountains. I can remember the meal we shared. We had communion at camp. I can remember those things. And I felt totally encased and enveloped and surrounded by the love of God in that moment. I'll never forget it. That's one of the moments that I go back to. That's one of those moments of memory that Jesus is Lord of, and he reminds me of who he is when I remember it. These two disciples were kind of the least of the disciples. They weren't part of the 11. They were leaving town. They hadn't bothered to go and investigate the empty tomb themselves, even though they had heard about it. And I wonder to myself, why did these two get a special visit from Jesus? Why these two? There were others that really could have gotten it, you know. But then it occurred to me, there's no amount of doubt and there's no amount of distance from God that he won't send his son to pursue us into and reveal himself to us truly. There's no amount of doubt that you have. There's no amount of distance that you could go. You could go seven miles from Jerusalem or 7,000 miles. Jesus will still walk along the road with you and reveal himself to you in your doubt, in your despair. And he'll teach you about who he truly is, about how the Son of Man really does have to suffer before he can enter into his glory. When he breaks the bread in front of them, he's really talking about suffering. He's talking... He's really signifying his own body in that moment when he breaks it in front of them. He said, this is for you. I'm giving it to you. I'm, just as I broke my body and bled out for you, 
I'm breaking this bread and blessing it and giving it to you. And when you take this meal, and I ask you to remember this meal. Do you remember 20 minutes ago when you were here? I hope you do. That's memory. In that meal, Jesus was giving himself to you, breaking and thanking and giving and blessing for you. And there's no amount of doubt in your life that he won't come after you with. Today I want you to do something. Take five minutes when you get home. Find a piece of paper about that big and write down on it that one time in your life, just one of them, when you knew God was real. That moment where you met the risen Lord, that moment where he broke himself for you and you got it that his suffering was for your sake, that moment where you gave yourself to him and asked him to be the Lord of all of your life, your past, your present, your future. On that paper, write down when that was, where you were. What did you experience? What did you hear? What did you see? What did you smell? What did you feel? Write those things down as much as you can, as many of the details as you can bring to bear on it. And then I'm going to ask you to put it in your Bible and use it as a bookmark, okay? So that when you open your Bible, you might come across it from time to time and look at it again. And just like Jesus on the road, ah, there was that moment when Jesus was truly real for me. It doesn't matter how small or inconsequential we feel or how far from God we think we've gone. These two disciples, I think, ended up becoming two of the most important disciples in all of the church. Some people have looked at this passage and said, oh my word, Jesus spent two hours lecturing them about the Old Testament and how it all pointed to him. What a shame that we've lost all that knowledge. I wonder if we could ever recover any of that. And I say that kind of with a smile. It's a really good bet that we lost none of that information, but that these two disciples ended up becoming sources for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They became the people to which all the gospel writers went and asked questions about this topic. Could be. It doesn't say that, but I think there's a really good bet that that's the case. Jesus found them in their doubt and in their escape from Jerusalem. And he gave them a task of proclamation. They started right away. They got up at once and went back to Jerusalem. But from that point on, I believe, especially in the parts of the gospel, wherever you read, this was done to fulfill prophecy. You know that phrase in the gospels? It's everywhere in the gospels. You can bet that those words came from Jesus himself and they remembered it or to the gospel writers directly, or it came to the gospel writers through the ministry of these two disciples. There's no one so small or so far from God or so deep into doubt that Jesus won't pursue them and give them a task of proclamation. I've asked you to think back to a time when you knew God was real, but I'm aware that there may be many possibly in this room who can't find that time because you haven't had it yet. 
Maybe you have never truly sensed that Jesus is real. Maybe you have been kept from seeing him all your life until today. Jesus wants to make himself known to you in his own brokenness, in his suffering and dying and bleeding for you on the cross. If you don't have a memory of it in the past, I invite you to start a memory of it today. In this meal that we took, or at the end of the service, to invite you to come forward and hear about Jesus broken and died for you for the redemption of your sins. And I'll make that invitation at the end of the service. And the deacons I'd like to invite up at that time too to listen to anyone else who has to want to come forward and hear that word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that there is no distance of doubt so great that you will not send your Son after us to find us and reveal to us his brokenness for our new life. Amen.